0: The Garden of Eden. It's got that mystique, right? It's kind of that proverbial paradise. Um, Even secular culture will refer to the Garden of Eden. It's an Edenic-like land. And, of course, you hear about it in Sunday school, and it's just like that paradise, that perfect place. And so we kind of have these very vague notions of what the Garden of Eden is, But my job as a Bible student is to dig beneath the surface and see what it's saying. And there's a lot that actually we can learn about the Garden of Eden. And it's just the beginning. As much of Genesis is, it is just the cornerstone or the foundation of an unfolding part of Scripture as we go forward. So Eden is not just here. It is something that will continue to unfold as we go through scripture, as I will show you. Now, one of the confusions we must clear up right away is that the Garden of Eden is not like one place. I think sometimes we take that as a phrase and we say, that's the Garden of Eden. And there's like a sign on the front that says, Garden of Eden. Um, Eden was the place. Eden was the place. Eden had a garden. Okay, does this make sense? The way that a palace or a castle is the fortress, it's the place of dwelling, but it might also have a garden alongside it. That's how we need to understand Eden, is that it is a central place which happens to have a garden attached to it. So it's not just Garden of Eden synonymously, um, it's Eden and a garden. Okay? So it's the garden of a place called Eden. Now, before we get back to that, um, we're, as you see, the title is the Temple of Eden. That'd be kind of a fun spin. because You to the Garden of Eden. Well, let's talk about the Temple of Eden, because uh, that's basically what our premise is going to be, is that Eden is a temple. It was the first temple, and then there were many other temples that followed it. And then we'll talk about the practical implications of what does it mean that that was a temple, the church is a temple, and what God's going to do with the world That's where we're going. So we're going to look at our first temple. And from it, we're going to see what it means to be followers of Jesus and what it means that God's going to do with the world that he created. And why did he create at its very center a temple? So that's why the Temple of Eden. Now, real brief, a temple is not a building It's not an idol, it's not the priests, it's not an altar, it's not the bloody sacrifices. Those things were part of a temple, but a temple was in a sense, essentially boiling down all of those outer things, what a temple was, was the intersection between heaven and earth. God's realm known as heaven and humanity's realm known as earth intersect. And you call that a temple. Now, remember the earth is ours. God said, have dominion. Remember from last week, have dominion over the creation. This is yours to rule on my behalf. Heaven is the place where God rules and humans don't. Now, we often think heaven and earth, we think right now of these as separate places. God is somewhere up in the heavens, and who knows if it's out in some future faraway galaxy, or if it's like in our midst, we don't know. It's just, but that's heaven. It's not part of our place. We are on earth, and heaven and earth are separated. That's how we think of these terms. And you're right to an extent. Now, the Garden of Eden was the place where heaven and earth were coinciding together as one. There was no distinction between heaven and earth. Eden saw the two as one, and it was simply called Eden. It'll be later in the Bible, when we see humans fall, and the curse come upon the earth, and the fall, that heaven and earth will separate. And that's where we experience today, is a very earthly earth. And we don't really experience heaven much. So heaven, God's space, earth, man's space, where they collide, where they intersect, where two worlds come together, that's what a temple is. God's plan is to get this everywhere. As Isaiah 11 verse nine says, Isaiah eleven nine. for the earth shall be Full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Last I checked, the waters covered a hundred percent of the sea. And the earth will be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. That means the entire planet will be full of the presence and knowledge of God. That's where God is going. That's what he's going to do with the planet, whether it's, you know, remade or whatever that is. But God and humans will be together in its entirety, like in Eden. So Eden was that. It lost it and, the, and heaven and earth were separated and only in, in, in little places, which we then started to call temples, like this building that Israel had, this temple, that's where heaven and earth met right there and where Israel could go talk to God. But everywhere else, humans are ruining the earth and they're ruining each other and they're fighting and killing each other and they're ripping each other off. And then later, Jesus comes to earth, and there, heaven and earth are meeting, there in Jesus, while all around him, humans are doing their thing. And then the church, there, in the church, here, through the Holy Spirit within the believers, heaven and earth are intersecting in the church. And what we see is, as God's presence covered the entire globe, and they called it Eden, In the future, we see in Revelation, which we didn't do that long ago, God's presence will cover everything once again. And heaven and earth will be one. The entirety of the world will be a temple. That's what Eden was. It was the dwelling place of God and humans in perfect harmony and no dissension. How do we know that? There are hints all over for the careful reader. So let's look at a few of them, shall we? Is Eden really a temple? Are we supposed to see it that way? Yes, 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 yes. Reason number one, (laughs) look at God. God is there. Where God is and humans are, you have an intersection of heaven and earth. You have temple space. Now, To what extent is God there? We will find out, and we can cheat and look ahead at 3 verse 8, that God walks with Adam and Eve in the cool of the day. It says in 3 8, And they heard the sound of God walking in the garden in the cool of day. So we know that God made a casual stroll with the humans in Eden, that there was that kind of relationship there. Furthermore, this isn't just, oh, well, God's there. That word walking They heard the sound of God walking in the garden. That's the same exact word that God uses when he talks to the Israelites in Leviticus 26, 12. And he says, you shall, the King James usually puts it very nicely. uh, Something like, when you go and do your business, take a shovel with you and cover up. (laughs) And the reasoning was, is because the Lord your God walks in Israel's camp. That camp in the wilderness where the tabernacle, the temple was there in their midst. He's, God walks in this camp and God walks in the garden of Eden. And there we see a connection that is meant to be made. Israel later builds a tabernacle to say, we lost Eden. But as we follow Yahweh, there is an Eden in our midst because God walks with us. Now, if you're fact-checking me on the Leviticus passage, it does say walking, but I can't remember if that's the one about covering your—but there's one in Deuteronomy which uses the word walking, and it does talk about covering your business. So if you're fact-checking me, I didn't lie. I might have just mixed up the two, and I don't remember which one in Deuteronomy it is. If you find it, you get extra credit. Good for you. So there's two passages that talk about him walking in the camp, Leviticus 26, uh, 12, and then there's one in Deuteronomy. But so God's not only walking, present with them, interacting, but he's, secondly, and this is part of number one, it's just the presence of God, he's resting. Now you may recall that resting was the idea of a deity entering into a place. So if God's resting on the seventh day, it means he created for himself a six-day temple. It took him six days to build the earth, which was his temple. On the seventh, he said, ah, it's done. I'm going to enter into it. I'm going to move into it. So if he's resting in this place, then we know that he's there and that it's his temple and that humans are living in this temple with him. Now, add to this um, Psalm chapter 132. It might be worth turning to or just jot it down. But Psalm chapter 132, this is how the Jews thought about the temple. They considered the one in Jerusalem as God's resting place. So hear this in Psalm 132 verse 7. Let us go to his dwelling place. Let us worship at his footstool. Arise, O Lord, and go to your resting place, you and the ark of your might. Where is this resting place? The psalm continues. Let your priests be clothed with righteousness and let your saints shout for joy for the sake of your servant David. Do not turn away the face of your anointed one. The Lord swore to David a sure oath from which he will not turn back. One of your sons of your body I will set on your throne. If your sons keep my covenant, it goes on um, there, but then it gets to 13 and it continues the thought. For the Lord has chosen Zion. He has desired it for his dwelling place. Now Zion is the mountain on which Jerusalem sits. He's chosen that mountain as his resting place or for his dwelling place. Then verse 14 says, "This is my resting place forever. Here I will dwell for I have desired it." So Psalm 132, which by the way, is a Psalm of Ascent, which is the songs that they would sing while they're going up the hill to Jerusalem to go worship God in the temple. This is one of those songs. And they start singing as they get closer to the temple. This is God's resting place. And we're going there to worship him. You also notice the mention of priests, his dwelling place, his resting place. It's all synonymous That God rested in temples. Now, it's not to say he wasn't everywhere, but that was where he conquered. Because in the temple, and this is the point of Leviticus, which is boring reading, but interesting concept. (laughs) In the temple, God is king. And no human can do whatever he wants in the temple. They all have to follow the king's orders in the temple. Hence, it's the king's resting place. There's no opposition. All that to say uh, that Eden appears because of the presence of God. He's walking and he's resting, both temple terms. God's doing both in Eden. So that's number one. Second reason Eden's a temple is the presence of priests. That's what you would expect in a temple. Well, we have a God, Yahweh's there, and we have priests. They're the humans, If you look (laughs) in chapter 2, verse 15 of Genesis, verse 15, you read this. Again, this is where a little bit of Bible digging will help you. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to do two things. The ESV says, to work it and keep it. (laughs) Those two terms, when put together in the Hebrew language, only appear... Two other times, and both of those appearances are explaining the duties of the priest in the tabernacle. So, when it says that Adam and Eve, Eve by implication, are to work and keep the garden or Eden. The, the, the Hebrew reader who knows the entire Pentateuch and the other parts are going to talk about the tabernacle is saying, oh, here are the first priests. They do exactly what our priests in the tabernacle do. They work and they keep it. Now, if you want to know those passages um, where those two words appear, it's Numbers 3, verses 7 to 8, Numbers 3, verses 7 to 8, and Numbers 8, verses 25 to 26. Numbers 8, verses 25 to 26. I cannot guarantee that your translations will say it exactly as it says in Genesis, but if you look at the Hebrew, they are the same words, and that's significant. So we have priests, Adam and Eve, are doing the functions of a priest in the Eden. Now you can imagine work and keep. Um, If you're in a temple, there's work to be done. The priests would polish the gold. They would clean off the altars. They would do the bloody stuff of killing animals and dissecting and burning on the altar, right? There were there was work to be done. There was also keeping to be done. There was a lot of cleanliness laws that they had to keep going on. They had to make sure that impure people did not enter and defile the temple. So there was a lot of guarding and protecting. That's the idea of keeping. So that's, that gives you an idea of what working and keeping looks like. There are functions and there are perimeters to guard. Guard, right so Eden's a temple because God, second because of priests third it 's in the east real subtle mention there, but very significant you 'll notice it in verse uh, eight and the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east and the mention of this We're we're not very directionally minded, especially these days, because we just get out our phones like, tell me where to go. (laughs) But um, way, way, way back, the directions of the compass were not just directions, but they were all symbolic. The west is where the sun set. The east is where the sun rose. Now, the Jews valued this. That's why the temple in Jerusalem and the tabernacle in the wilderness always faced east. East. And even in some older churches and cathedrals, they build them in such a way so that they face east. East has always been symbolic of life. In fact, we call uh, our biggest holiday Easter. <laughs> there you're talking about life coming. Um, just as an example of how ancients thought about east and west, is if you look at the ancient Egyptians, uh, they, their civilization was around the Nile River. And it's really interesting that on the west side of the Nile, you have the pyramids. The pyramids were the ancient burial sites for the Egyptians. The death went on the west side. On the east side of the Nile were all their temples, because that was life, and they had to praise the gods for life. And of course, the Jews did it too with their temple. So, if Eden is in the east, the point is that this is a place of life, just as temples celebrate life. And so Eden, uh, borrow, the temple borrowing from Eden is showing us that. It's another hint that this is a temple. So God priests East, number four, the materials that Eden is made with. The materials Eden is made with. We're told in verse 11 that there is gold <coughs> in the land, and in verse 12, there's bdellium and onyx. Those are called in the Bible precious stones. They're also the very stones, two of which, two of the twelve, that were on the high priest's breastplate. Bdellium and onyx were on the breastplate. Gold happened to be the metal of choice for everything else in the temple. And so here, Eden is full of gold, and the very precious gems that are on the breastplate of the high priest, two of them are here mentioned in the land. So we see precious metals. Second, we see the tree of life. And when you look at the, um, the I am blanking on the easiest word in this whole night, um, lampstand. Lampstand. I you look at the lampstand in the tabernacle in the temple. The way it's described in Exodus is specifically describing a tree that the lampstand was meant to symbolize a tree. It had one long branch and off of it, a uh, trunk and off of it, six branches making seven lights. And there on it, Moses was told to carve into the branches. Do you remember anybody that nerdy? I'd hate that. That's a good thing in this setting. Anybody a good Bible student know what was on the branches? Leave it to the Pentateuch Bible teacher. Um, yeah, all almond blossoms were on the branches. This is a tree. That's what the lampstand was meant to symbolize. Eden was full of trees. And it's very possible that the lampstand was borrowing from the tree of life. Like, look, we lost that tree, but here in God's house, we have a tree that's giving us light and life. It's guiding us. Um, So there's a stone for the materials. There's the stones, there's the tree, and there is the guarding cherubim. So, when Adam and Eve fall and they can no longer enter Eden because it's a holy place and they're now unholy, God sends cherubim, you read about it at the end of chapter 3, he sends cherubim to guard the entrance to Eden. What was guarding the entrance to the Holy of Holies in the temple? It was a big veil on which was sewn images of cherubim. Furthermore, on the Ark of the Covenant itself, where it was said it was the footstool of God, it was his throne on earth, guarding on either side were two cherubim. And so cherubim, we see in the temples, were meant to be protectors of the holy places so that not just anybody can trump on in. And so here in Eden, when men and humans are no longer pure enough to be in the temple of Eden... The cherubim are sent to guard the entryway. So, those are the materials. So, we got God, priests, east, materials, stones, trees, and cherubim. Going fast, I'm keeping up with that. And fifth, and finally, Eden has a three part structure like the temple. So, let's start with what you know. You know that in the temple, there were three zones. And if you don't know it, you're going to know it now. And you're going to be, oh yeah, I knew that. There was, in the very center, there's a Holy of Holies. This was the holiest place, God's very throne. Around the Holy of Holies, you have the holy place. So there's only half holy, right? <laughs> holy of Holies, holy place. That's where the priests did their work. And then you had the outer courts where priests and common humans could come in. Holy of holies, holy place, outer courts. <laughs> In Eden we have the same structure. We have Eden as the holy of holies. This is where God's walking, this is where God is dwelling and humans are there because they aren't unclean yet. Eden, holy of holies. Around Eden is the garden which is like the holy place. It's fruitful. It's flourishing. It's reflecting a temple. (coughs) And then Genesis never tells us what's beyond the garden. Now we could suppose that the entire world is the garden right now, but I would suggest that the text is suggesting that the garden had limits to which the humans were put there in order to push its limits outward couple suggestions for you first of all there's a description that there's a river that starts in eden and goes to the garden right there you see that there's a movement right two structures eden the river starts it goes to the garden that's zone two and then it says from there it branches out into four rivers which would suggest we're now in a third zone. And four rivers would also suggest that the point is that these are going to the four corners of the world so that the humans can have waterways or highways of life in which to grow and expand the garden until it reached the entire globe and filled it. So that Eden had priests who had a mission in order to expand the ruling presence of God on the earth to the outer edges of the world. Now, could God have done that just at creation? Absolutely. But then I guess he wouldn't really have a purpose for us, would he? Remember, he gave us the dominion. He said what? Be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth. He's asking them to move from Eden outward. And as they go outward, what are they bringing with them? But the very presence of God they know of from Eden. Eden. And so there's this outward movement they're called to have. And then after multiply, move outward. What does he say? This is chapter 28, uh, chapter one, verse 28. If you're not recalling where this is. Fruitful, multiply, fill the earth. Then what? Subdue it and have dominion. Why do you have to subdue a garden? You subdue land that is not gardenized. I made that word up. (laughs) If you ask me, I think we have a picture of the three zones in which the third zone is outside the garden, and it's not quite described for us, but it's the place the humans were to go to let the garden continue to grow to subdue whatever's out there and make it flourishing and lifeful, life-giving. And that also is how you become the image of God because God created, and now the humans are going and expanding his creative work. That sounds really exciting to me. It's really a bummer that Adam and Eve ruined it. But that was... The mission of expanding Eden to the ends of the earth. Now, to further these three sections. Eden means delight. It is obviously the best place on earth. It means delight. Simple. Garden. The Hebrew implies that it's a walled or uh, enclosed place, and not like vegetable garden. Think more like national park, Yellowstone, Yosemite. So really big garden, but enclosed. And so then with the implication of moving it outward, it's enclosed, it it really does seem to imply that there is supposed to be a growth to this temple. And that was us, the priest's job. (laughs) So with those reasons in place, I think it's safe to suggest that Eden is a temple. And just in case we missed it, to back it up, the tabernacle completely intentionally mirrors parts of Eden as if to say, we're in this wilderness, but with God, there's Eden. And this is what God wants to do for all of humanity, is Eden. And this is why the Apostle Paul says, whoever's in Christ, he is a new creation, immediately being Genesis right there. And what does he tell us to bear in the spirit? The fruits of the spirit. Because fruits imply garden. They imply the temple of the original carrying onward. Um, <laughs> of course, the new heavens and the new earth in Revelation is completely Using the same imagery from Eden, there's the tree of life. There's the river of life, which it doesn't call it that here in Genesis, but there is a river um, and there is the precious stones and of course the gold. And of course, God saying, now I'm dwelling with humans and that whole idea of walking and living and resting with humans. So which leads us to this realization that Eden was not just the first and only temple, but it became the pattern for every temple after that. And though we lost Eden and turned our backs on God, and we no longer live in Eden itself, God has been relentlessly pursuing us and providing pockets of Eden here and there so that we can experience what God is like and what his world in the future will look like so that we can from there expand our Edens outward and absorb more of the people in the world around us so that Eden continues to grow look at this history we have first of course Eden we just did that what happened after humans rebelled against God well heaven and earth separated and when earth is separated from heaven it gets really ugly Cain kills Abel Cain has multiple wives and one of his children from one of these polygamous relationships ends up killing a young boy for making fun of him and then of course it gets so bad that God has to flood the whole world and start all over It was really bad without earth on heaven. Really bad. And so then it takes a long time, but God finally gets to the point where he has a people called Israel and there through Israel, he delivers them from the Egyptians and he gives them a tabernacle. And he says, here I will walk with you. Here I will rest with you. Here are some of the precious things. Here is all the elements of Eden right here in your midst. Now I'm going to give you a law so that you can go and show the world the blessings of my presence on earth so that they will come and worship me too. Okay, they more or less do a terrible job. Um, and then Solomon comes around and he's like, okay, no more tent thing. Let's take all of that Edenic stuff and put it in a building, which sounded good. He's like, God gets this great house, but suddenly you kind of confined God to this structure. And really what Solomon did is he domesticated God so that he could now have more power as a king and use God as a way to bring people. He enslaved his own people, for goodness sake. That's what Egypt did, Israel. And God said, do not slave your people. He enslaves them. He domesticates God. And he says, Lord, let you use this. We pray you use this temple to bring all nations to yourself. They all come to Solomon via the form of many women whom he's supposed to marry from every corner of the world. They're coming. Eden can, it has a chance of God's presence on earth to spread. And you know what Solomon does? He says, I'm so glad you're here. What God do you worship? Alright, let's build you a temple. Let's build you a temple. And he totally blows his chance when God answers his prayer. And so as a result, we see Israel gets worse and worse and worse. And then in Ezekiel chapters 10 and 11, we see that in his vision, Ezekiel's, The presence of God exits the temple and then goes over the Mount of Olives and disappears. Now even Israel's without the presence of that intersection of heaven and earth. And it gets bad for them as they become slaves to Babylon. But God has not given up. So what does he do? Heaven and earth intersect in the human body of Jesus, God on earth as a human. And there, as he's doing his ministry, he's doing everything that a temple is supposed to do. Exhibit A, when that lame man is brought down through the ceiling, as Jesus is teaching, right? And it's probably Peter's house. He always picks on Peter. <laughs> Hope you have insurance on that, buddy. Uh, and the man is brought down. Jesus says, what to that man? Do you remember what made the Pharisees so upset Your sins are forgiven. And they got so upset. Only God can forgive sins. Now, rewind to John the Baptist, who is in the Jordan River. And he's bringing people to the river for what? Forgiveness of sins. As people are confessing them. And there's this revival starting. And who comes up and is all disturbed by this? What are you doing? By what authority do you have these things what Jesus and John were doing with sin is what all of Israel knew was the temple's job. The temple forgave sins only when the worshiper brought a sacrifice and the priest proclaimed forgiveness upon you. And so what happens is when Jesus is saying your sins are forgiven and he's miles from the temple, what he's doing is he is subtly undermining the entire religious system. And he's saying to everyone there, you don't need that building anymore because that's not where heaven and earth intersect. This is where it intersects. So I will give you forgiveness. what John the Baptist was doing. It's why people are coming out to him saying, what is going on? It's not happening in the temples, not happening by our religious rulers. These ragtag rogues are doing these things that are undermining the system. Because God does not live in that building. Jesus does more, right? He eats with sinners. Pause. Pharisees were always upset with that because, of course, you're eating with unclean folk. The only people who ate with sinners were the priests in the temple when the sinner brought his offering and got to eat part of it and the priest part of it and God was there. And Jesus is eating with sinners because he's basically saying, yeah, whatever that building's like, this is where people are eating with God and getting forgiveness. Jesus was dangerous to the religious institution. And he was basically proclaiming in very Jewish terms, I am the dwelling place of God. I am Eden on earth. (coughs) So it wouldn't surprise us then, would it? That he then sends the same power to his people because he goes up, sends to the Father, and Paul says what in very clear language We are the temple. We are also the body of Christ, who's the head. If he was the temple and we're the body, we're moving on. And he calls us the temple. He says, the Holy Spirit lives in you. So you individually are a temple. But then collectively, he also says, these are both in Corinthians chapters three and six. Collectively, we also are the temple of God. We are the Eden on earth being that last remnant in a wasted world where humans are ruling without heaven's help. And killing everything. The church is saying, but this is what it looks like when God walks with the people. This is what it looks like when we commune with him and have forgiveness from him. And then we're doing our very best. Well, we're trying to do our best until God does return. And there in Revelation 21, verse 3, we read, the dwelling place of God is now with humans. And then he'll wipe away every tear and there will be no more death, no more sorrow. The former things will be remembered no more because heaven and earth will finally for once and for all be just like Eden, completely covered. And that will be the victory. We win. So over and over, God's sending us these places where we can connect with him. And if we are part of this strand of temples, the church is, then we can learn a lot here from Eden and what our purpose is on earth right now. F- so, um, it shouldn't surprise you then <coughs> that you read passages like Matthew twenty 20- <coughs> Matthew twenty eight verse twenty. You guys know this by heart. I know you do. Let's start at Matthew twenty eighteen. Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Why isn't that surprising? It doesn't take a lot of imagination to see that Jesus is doing to his disciples as the temple, sending out his priests, what God was having in Adam and Eve do in Eden. Sending them out to the ends of the world to be fruitful and multiply and subdue the earth and bring my ruling presence across the globe. And here are the disciples to do the same thing. Jesus, all authority is given to me. I'm the king. And you've seen what I've done. I am the temple of God. I am the dwelling place of God on earth. And I'm sending you my priests outward. Go be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth with other replicas of you. That's what make disciples means. Make more Jesus followers so that the whole earth is filled with them. So baptize them, right? That means bring them in, teach them. That means let them understand. Baptizing is multiplying. Teaching is subduing. Because the things, the rough edges of the world in us are taught away. And we're learning how to subdue the world through scripture and the teaching of it. And so we go forward and we are expanding God's Eden. That's just the Genesis term. The gospel to the ends of the earth. Similarly, in Acts chapter 1 verse 8. You know this one too by heart, I'm sure. Acts 1 8. But you, right before Jesus goes up to heaven, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, epicenter, and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And if we're talking geographical temple here, Jerusalem is the holy of holies of the world. Go from there. And we see in Acts, we follow them as they do spread out and as they are fruitful and they multiply and they fill the earth. In fact, Luke. Um, who's the writer of Acts, inserts progress reports throughout the letter in which we see him saying, and the church multiplied, and the church was uh, faithful to the word and multiplied these progress reports of its growth. What's Luke's point? We have been going from the center of Eden outward, and we're seeing the fruitfulness and the multiplication happening just as it was originally commissioned back in Genesis. Jesus, through him, we're finally doing the best we can as fallen beings, what Adam and Eve were to originally do. We're in the greatest restoration project of history. So then, with those two generally uh, called commission versus the great commission, um, we see it mirroring the commission in Genesis, and we see it's very clear. The role of humans as the priests of God and as his temple is to expand Eden. The presence of God, the fruitfulness of God, the blessings of God, the peace of God, the goodness of God, the rulership of God, to expand Eden to the ends of the earth. Now, that can sound daunting. And frankly, I often feel very discouraged with how daunting of a task the church is can sound. And it's almost to the point where we're like, we're just relying on our superstars in a sense. You know, if only God would give us more Greg glories, more harvest crusades, and man, that man's doing as much as he can. And we're thinking if only there was a few more, we could have more countries covered, right? But I don't think that that's exactly the only way this can be done. In fact, that's, and if people have that talent, they should do it. But God has not given all of us that talent. You've probably prayed for it and didn't get it. Well, there's probably a reason. God had a different plan for you. In expanding to the world, God is asking us to do the same thing he asked Adam to do in chapter 2, verse 15. To work and keep Eden. So, um, the way we make disciples... The way we be fruitful, the way we multiply is to keep working in the garden you're given and to keep it, to protect it. So what does it mean to work, Eden? If we're using garden imagery, it means simply to cultivate. Cultivate the soil's not yielding what I want it to. I give a little tender love and care. A little digging, a little, you know, fertilizer, a little watering. It takes care. That's work. That's bringing something there that wasn't there. Um, training a parrot to talk. <laughs> That's cultivating. This animal isn't supposed to talk, but you made it talk. Um, you talk about the word cultivate. Well, our word culture comes from the same idea. Culture, in which we describe a society's way of life and interests, is what happens when humans cultivate the world God gave them. Sometimes they don't cultivate it very well. Sometimes they cultivate it very well. We don't eat raw food every night we come here. Praise God. Because we have people who have learned to cultivate. There is culture in the foods we eat every day. That's been a development from human work. That's what it looks like to work the garden in a real literal sense. So in the sense of expanding Eden to the ends of the earth, working looks like taking up whatever you're good at and being the best you can be at it wherever you are. It doesn't mean standing on a platform and saying, well, I guess I'm just a nobody, so I'll just keep supporting the somebodies. No, we're all somebodies. And I want you to imagine if we all stood in the very center here together, with our backs turned toward the center. So we're all facing outward and we're now on a mission to go expand and multiply outward. We would all start walking outward, right? If we kept going long enough, we would be so far apart from each other. We wouldn't see each other. And then you wouldn't be doing very good at expanding your little border any further. But see, this is the point. As I'm expanding my border, I'm also gaining a wife or a husband. I'm gaining some kids or I'm gaining some co-workers at work or some friends at my bunco club or (laughs) um, we're gaining people wherever we go and expand the borders so that we are to them trying to multiply. We're trying to make disciples and saying, hey, work with me at pushing this another foot forward. If everybody did the whole one foot forward in their lifetime We would see Eden expanding. And as we grab people next to us, we wouldn't be stretched so far apart that we didn't see each other anymore. We would continue to be going outward and pushing it outward. That's the goal. Inch by inch, little by little, the 12 disciples. Jesus could have said, you know what? I'm going to have 1,200 disciples and send them out. But he knew better because he knew that we're common folk with common some of us aren't very ambitious, you know. We've just got simple plans in life, and He knows that even us can be used. So just get a handful of people and push the border an inch or two at a time. That's working. It keeping it can be a little more sketchy because as we make progress, we can't just let the wild animals come in. We, we can't just let anything go. We're establishing something, and we have to protect what we establish. If we're bringing goodness to the earth, we can't just say, oh, sure, pollute it with sin. If we're seeking to value human life, we can't just put rulers and try to say, eh, whatever. So there's an important aspect where you're not just pushing the borders. And I think sometimes we're at fault here. Sometimes we can be so evangelistically minded that we just want to win people and win people, but we don't do very good at shoring up our borders. We're expanding, but there's so many holes that the the forces of chaos can just crawl on in and they corrupt us from the inside out. We have to be good at not only multiplying and working our area, but also setting up the proper parameters. Like, wait a minute, I I love all kinds of music, but that one may not belong in our ears here. Or I'm for these ideas of how to assemble people and lead people and rule people. But that type of rulership doesn't seem to be dancing well with our vision of humanity (coughs) from little things to what we allow in our lives. We call this holiness. That's a simple term from little things we allow in our lives to the bigger ideas of what the church at large is allowing and what it's doing and our government and so forth. The idea is holiness that if we are indeed expanding the sacred presence of God wherever we go, we, can't, we also have to make sure that we treat it like the holy, sacred presence of God. <coughs> Keeping the temple holy. So it's a two-edged sword. On one hand, we're like Jesus, who healed the demoniac and the Gadarenes. You might remember it's in several, of the, several a few of the Gospels. Um... He goes to an unclean city. It was a Gentile city. Jews weren't supposed to go there. Pigs were feeding on the land. Another reason he shouldn't be there. There were tombs, I said, right on the hillside where he got off the boat. Another reason he shouldn't be there. And there's this demon-possessed man coming down to him. We don't see Jesus having to go through purity rituals. He, in fact, cleanses the unclean. clean. And this demoniac man is clean. He also touches lepers, right? What we're seeing is he doesn't have to stay away from unclean places because he believes as the temple of God, wherever his foot goes, that place becomes holy. Whoever he touches, that person becomes holy. Wherever he eats, that table becomes holy. So Jesus didn't have to say, oh, they're sinners. Don't come around me. He he took the seriousness of God. I'm the temple and I'm expanding Eden. So wherever I go, it is now holy. That's working the garden, right? That's pushing it outward. But at the same time, there's a limit, isn't there? There's somewhere where we have to keep ourselves holy. But we can't be so overemphasizing holiness and keeping, you know, Hold the line and keep everything clean that we're kicking out the very people who may become holy by coming into our own presence. So it's a tricky line. And it's where legalism has a massive temptation to creep in. Legalism is the not so subtle art of enforcing laws which work for one person and they try to make it work for everybody else. You know? So, some of you are like Christian music only people, and that's a real, you know, your line, and that's how you have to keep the garden in your life. But as soon as all of us have to be Christian music only people, that's legalism. Because some people, music is just, that is just not how it affects them. They're fine. I'm not talking about totally gross music. I think all of us should have a line very clearly drawn somewhere. But like, you know, just some innocent country music, whatever, some Christians are like totally fine with that, you know? But man, the minute we divide ourselves over it, that, that's legalism. So the holiness aspect, the, the keeping your garden aspect, that needs to, you need to know your boundaries and you need to know how to keep your garden protected. And it might be different for each of us, just like your way of working the garden is going to look different for each of us. But as a whole, the church as a body has a very clear description in scripture of where we as a church body are to Draw certain lines. And what kind of laws should be enforced. So that will be more universal. But still, brothers and sisters, long way to say. (laughs) Go into Lake Arrowhead, Crestline, Running Springs, Twin Peaks, Blue Jay. Big, I don't know, where do you guys go? Where you're from? Oh, Cedar Pines Park. Don't well, forget them. Um, <laughs> go and realize that where you go, the temple is going. So keep pushing the boundaries and realize if that's an unholy place, maybe I need to find a way to make it holy. Maybe I need to grab a couple Christians in order to help keep myself clean to together go to that place. That's expanding Eden. Eden. And that's, that's the Great Commission. That's what we've been asked to do. And here in Genesis, we saw it early on. And I think we have a really cool picture of what it looks like. So you guys have the water of life? Like, follow that river and go and use its water to flourish the land around you. Be fruitful. Multiply. Just even one or two people in your life, it will make a difference. So just multiply. If it's through your kids, through your spouse, through coworkers, or any other extension, just Multiply is not a scary call to be Billy Graham, just to bring the temple wherever you go.